Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands. Thanks for joining us today for our second Q&A episode of season two. If you haven't heard the episode LGBTQ+, Persecution and Exclusion from Family and Faith, and LGBTQ+, Spiritual and Secular Inclusion and Inspiration, please go back and listen. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're not already receiving our newsletter, we hope you'll go to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com and sign up. All newsletter subscribers have a chance to win a signed copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and the accompanying workbook during each and every Q&A episode. Absolutely. Yeah, please connect with us through the website. And thank you to those who subscribe and who send in questions. Really, those make these Q&A episodes such a rich and rewarding experience. And we've got so many great questions to explore today for this Q&A episode. But I just want to take a moment to introduce our subject matter expert on these topics. Caroline Heffernan has intimate knowledge of inclusion and exclusion for LGBTQ plus folks, and her work specializes in allyship, leadership, sports, gender, and LGBTQ identity. So I'm just going to read her bio and then we'll launch right in. Dr. Caroline Heffernan is an assistant professor of instruction in the Department of Sport and Recreation Management at Temple University. Prior to coming to STHM, Dr. Heffernan successfully defended her doctoral dissertation on the application allyship to gender in sports organization at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Her research work specializes in allyship in sport, gender in sport leadership, and leadership. Dr. Heffernan's work has been published in Sport Management Review, and she earned her PhD in kinesiology with an emphasis on sport management from the University of Minnesota and attained a Master of Science in Sport and Recreation Management from STHM. She received a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Bryn Mawr College, so quite an extensive bio. And Caroline, thank you so much for being here with Zach and me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. And so while you have this extensive professional background that I just let our listeners know about and that we're going to be delving into, I want to start with the personal for a moment. And in our pre-interview conversations, you shared about having had your own experiences with spirituality and identity. Are you are you open to talking a little bit about that? And can you share some of what you shared prior to this? Yeah, I'm more than happy to share that. And I guess I'll do kind of more of a, a broad situational or positioning of myself, which is probably very academic. But that's fine. Yeah, so I am a white queer woman who was raised Catholic. And I refer to myself as having left the church and maintained some of the the traditional Catholic pieces. And it was a, a kind of a major piece of, of my childhood and kind of orienting principle in my family, but not necessarily something that is a lived, a lived practice for me anymore. You said that you're not practicing now, but I'm curious, like how have your personal experiences led you to the professional work that you do, whether it be in spirituality in general or in sports, or you talked about being a queer woman, like how did who you are shape what you do? 
Yeah. So fundamentally, I think my life has been shaped profoundly by sport. I mean, I can't remember a time where I wasn't participating in sport or watching sports with my family. And when I was looking to go to college, I kind of knew I wasn't done playing sports from high school. I was a three season athlete in high school and I had kind of made the decision that I wanted to focus on one sport. And so I went to Bryn Mawr College, which is a women's college here in the Philadelphia area. And while I was there, I got talked into playing other sports while I was there. So I ended up being a three season athlete there as well. And in general, just Bryn Mawr kind of teaches you to engage with the world through and with, and with your passions. It's to try and change the world through your passions. And so for me, my passion and the orienting principle of my life has been sport. And so that kind of led me to um, being an, an assistant coach for a few years, still at Bryn Mawr, and then also working in the sport nonprofit space here in Philly. And as I was looking for what kind of I needed to progress within my career, I discovered Temple's School of Sport Tourism and Hospitality Management and wanted to pursue a degree here so I could continue that career path. And while I was here, I discovered that there was a whole space to critically engage within sport in an academic context, which is not something I had been privy to going to a small liberal arts college like Bryn Mawr. And so while I was here, one of my professors actively encouraged me to get a PhD. And so that kind of led me to Minnesota. And while I was there, the timing happened well with where Becky Hammond was hired around the time I started my, uh, while I started my doctoral program. And for those of you who don't know who Becky Hammond is, she's the first woman to be a assistant coach of a men's professional team. And she was hired by the San Antonio Spurs, who have been historically very successful. And the head coach was like, she knows basketball and she's good. What else do you want? So because he was so clear and had been so successful, her hiring was never really challenged. And so I looked at that from a personal experience of what it was like to be in the sport industry, observe the sport industry, and then looking at my college athlete experience at a women's college where women's leadership was fundamentally unquestioned. And to try and really navigate those different pieces and then also take the experience of me being a queer woman who around this time was also when marriage equality was successful at the Supreme Court, knowing the way that allyship was deeply important in the multiple wins that the LGBT community had had up until that point. It was kind of this confluence of circumstances that really led to my work as related to my dissertation, but then also the work that I continue to do in the classroom here at SDHM. Awesome. One thing I'm curious about. So later in the season, we have an episode dedicated to diversity in sports. But based on your area of interest, can you share with us a little about how sexual orientation and or gender identity are currently being used as barriers to keep LGBTQ athletes from fully participating in this athletic arena in general? Well, I would say that the gender identity piece is new, but the sexual orientation piece is, is kind of been there. I think as soon as women have been introduced to the sporting space, there has always been concern about lesbianism, particularly on the women's sports side. And I mean, Renee Portland at Penn State, you know, she was very open that she was like, there were no lesbians in my program. And that was part of her recruiting pitch. And so I think the way that particularly within women's sports, there has always been this narrative of women's sports are where queer women are. 
and we need to kind of protect the women. And so we see even some of the ways that women would perform their heterosexuality while they're playing a sport and make sure, you know, they would put makeup on and things like that, or they would wear bows, right? Those are all kind of things that are done to demonstrate that I'm not fitting into this stereotype of what it is to be a female athlete. So there's the newer bills that have been introduced in places like Idaho and Texas and various other states, but it's, it's not necessarily new from the sexual orientation side. And recently, a lot of the bills that are being introduced are much more focused on maintaining the integrity, in quotes, of the amateur interscholastic sport and trying to keep it so that it is a space that's protected for women, or excuse me, for athletes assigned female at birth, which for the people who are introducing these bills mean women, but it's not necessarily the conversation that the progressive side of the world is having when we mean women. The bills are trying to focus in on it or associate sex assigned at birth with gender identity, and that's not necessarily the case. And so I expect, as the law instructor here, I expect to have um, a few more cases in and around that within, within the next few years going to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And I think I'll just interject that for the listener, we'll put some reading resource material in our show notes for people, because I think sometimes people don't even know what you just said, like what that means, right? Or the differentiation between sex assigned at birth and gender identity. And I think that it's an important conversation for people to have before even beginning to embark on the conversation about participation, right? Because I think people don't, these are foundational things that I might take for granted, (laughs) like doing this work, Zach might take for granted, you, Caroline, certainly with the work that you do, but not everyone is familiar with these terms or familiar with even like what we're even talking about when we're talking about participation and gender and sex assigned at birth. Yeah. I don't know if you want to share anything else about that. I think the only thing I would add is... In addition to all those pieces, I mean, I think there's what what's particularly strange about sport is sport is about winning, right? For the most part, that's that's the objective goal. And I always use this example of, you know, Michael Phelps, when he was in his in his peak at 2000 Olympics and the 2012 Olympics, I remember like NBC, like having a graphic of his body and his torso is long and his legs are short and he has feet like flippers. And it's all about competitive advantage and how that specific body type facilitated competitive advantage. But when we take the other side, if we go on to the Castor Semenia space where she's a female athlete who has higher naturally occurring levels of testosterone, well, that's questionable, right? Because she's a woman and that competitive advantage, those natural pieces that are, uh, excuse me, that naturally higher testosterone, that's questionable. We have to regulate that. So there's always this scrutiny that we place on athletes who are participating in women's sports that we have not necessarily placed on the men's sports side. And we even see that with a lot of trans athletes who are trying to participate in interscholastic sport, there are more regulations on the male to female athletes than the female to male athletes. And so it's just this continued dynamic of, well, we have to protect the women athletes or the female athletes. Hmm. And taking this a little bit beyond sports, In these past two episodes, episodes three and four, we emphasize religious and secular inclusion and exclusion. Every speaker talked about the importance of belonging. So I'm curious from you, how important is belonging in your experience? And what is the cost of having to fight for that belonging? I think belonging is foundational for 
being able to be fully present and fully engaged. That goes back to even my college experience. Again, I mentioned I was incredibly fortunate to have gone to a historically women's college at Bryn Mawr College, where the fact that you were a woman was not necessarily questioned and that allowed for different opportunities because you could be, a woman was going to be the president of our self-governance association because we were majority women, including some trans and non-binary folk. And so I think that having that baseline of there was this uniting principle and we all kind of self-selected into this experience created this unity. And what belonging to me signifies is belonging and the fact that we are united on some kind of basic and or core principle. And I think that that space of belonging creates a sense of safety and not in a term of I'm safe from being questioned, but safe in that I'm able to explore. And that exploration really allows for the ability to grow. And I think when you're, the second question was what's missed. It's, it's like, what's the cost of actually having to fight for that belonging? I think the cost is that people are fighting an internal battle. And so they become so focused on some of the anxiety pieces, they can't necessarily be fully present and or fully engaged. And it creates more of this imposter syndrome that they then have to carry in and along with them because they're trying to figure out, well, how do I actually fit in? Whereas if you fit in or you feel as though you are welcomed, then you can create a space where you're like, I at least know that I fit in and I, I can try out different things or I can work to improve something or I can try something else and develop to see if I'm interested in this area. Whereas if you're not feeling included, you're just wondering how can I do what I need to do to feel included so I'm not othered. I think mm-hmm. it's so important that you talked about that. And Zach, like what a great question. But there's this cost that you speak about to fighting for belonging and not wanting to feel othered and the imposter syndrome. And there's a cost of not fighting. And Caroline, Zach had mentioned a little earlier that we're doing a sports episode later in the season, and we've already pre-recorded those interviews. And one of the people that I interviewed was Natalie Fahey, and she spoke about her transition. And one of the things that Natalie said that I think was really poignant and important was she talked about how in many ways not transitioning would have been deadly for her and also at the same time how being forced to give up swimming would also have been deadly for her. That double bind really speaks to the need for allyship in a lot of ways. And I know, Caroline, a lot of your work is is focused on that. So can you talk a little bit about how allyship can interject itself in these seemingly no-win situations? Yeah, and I think that What I'm assuming when in that previous answer was it might not necessarily be a shared identity, but there is some kind of uniting principle between us. And so it doesn't always have to be a shared identity because we can find belonging with people who look nothing like us and have no type of shared identity. So I think the way that allyship can really come into play to kind of your second part of the question is someone who given the situation has some form of power, because that's that's fundamentally usually what makes an ally an ally and not part of the minority group or the oppressed group. But I also think that 
that person who has that power also has some type of self-awareness to recognize that they have the power and also the willingness for them to use and leverage that power for a good that is not directly related to their identity, right? What's different from someone like a sponsor or a mentor is usually someone who's a sponsor or a mentor. They're doing that for kind of their own professional development or to say, you know, these are the number of people I've done this. Whereas allyship tends to be associated with a social justice movement. It has its foundations in the civil rights movement. And it's recognizing, right, I'm trying to advocate, push along this idea when when a voice that is not present needs to be here and I'm able to amplify that voice. And so I think what separates allyship is that person who is not the minority has the recognition and willingness, that self-awareness, that they're actually willing to put themselves and align themselves with the non-majority. Right. Well, and someone might be the non-majority in one case and might be marginalized in one case and another case, they might be that person who has power or privilege, right? I think that can be a sticky realization for some people, but it's an important one. No, absolutely. And I think that even in the way that I approach my position, right? Like I'm a white queer woman. I am much more comfortable speaking out and being very vocal about issues impacting people of color because I know that I, my voice has a different level of credence, right? Because I am white, there's people perceive what I'm saying with a different sense than if it were than if the same message were coming from a person of color. And so I recognize that. Whereas not to say I'm muzzled or I don't speak up when there are things impacting the LGBTQ community, but I think that a lot of my work just comes from being present. So I don't always feel like I, I need to lend my voice in that same way. And so the intersectional identity piece, right? We all have different components of our identity, but it's recognizing, you know, in what space do I have power and what space might I be part of this minority group? What will it take for us to fight it, to realize that we all are one? Make unity and inner peace the only reason. Cause we need better, need so much better. We deserve better, red, white, and blue. I want you to share a little bit more about allyship as it pertains to you in, in your own life. So who's been someone in, in your life that's been one of your biggest allies? And maybe even give us an example of how you've been an ally for someone else. Yeah. So me and my close college friends, I would count as very important allies for me. And I always, I had one friend who I remember, she was getting married and I believe it was in the Episcopal faith. And she was very unhappy with the particular language around marriage that they used. And it was, I guess, something about, you know, a man taking a wife and her being obedient to her husband. And she's like, this does not fit me in any way, shape or form. And the partnership that I'm trying to craft with my fiance, her now husband. And I remember she was like, but, you know, I forgot that they had crafted new language when the Episcopal Church had started to honor same-sex marriages. And so they were planning to use that particular 
devotional faith, what are those vows when they were going to get married, they ended up using their own vows. But there's it's things like that that stick out to me. And she's also the friend that I remember. She's the person that broke the news to me that marriage equality had passed. She had called me on the phone and given the time difference, I was still asleep and she was crying. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what's wrong? Why, why are you crying? And she's like, marriage equality passed. And I was just like, holy crap. I didn't cry until I think probably like a few days later. And I remember like she was so moved to tears that for me, like she, she could have gotten married. She could have gotten married like whenever she wanted to, but she like, she knew that it was important for me. And so like, it's those types of things that help you recognize. It's like, that's, that's what allyship is. Like she has no dog in this fight outside of her, her care and love for me, but personally has nothing to do with it. And as for me, I would say, Like I mentioned, I particularly focus in on a lot of my allyship around advocating for people of color because I am a white person and I'm a white person who often gets perceived as to be a white dude. And so that affords me a different level of privilege based on the way that I choose to present. So there are times that I'm in meetings with colleagues where people of color are making points that I don't feel like are being listened to. And the conversation has gone in a different way. And I say, you know, I would like to revisit this point, or I think we should, I would reframe it and bring it back to, I, you know, I don't think we've actually heard this point to the extent that we need to. And my colleagues have said to me, I know what you're doing and I appreciate that. And so that for me, it's making sure that I'm not stealing their voice, but it's kind of like the, um, my big fat Greek wedding. It's like, I'm not the head, I'm the neck. But I can use this to kind of pivot. I can use my position as a white queer woman to amplify that voice and to make sure that that point that is being dismissed is being heard. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you sharing an example. I mean, I loved the example that you gave of your friend and then also the example in in a work context, because I think one of the things that is really hard, and this came up for me with the interviews throughout this episode, is that like often... I think there's an expectation that people are going to be excluded from spaces where they're excluded from the get-go, right? Like there's just that door is closed, no barrier to entry. And that is psychologically damaging in its own right. There's like a specific kind of damage when you're in a space that is a space that there's an expectation of inclusion, right? Like in a work meeting or something or, or a faith community places where individuals are there and they're there. They have a seat at the table. Like there's this sense of, yeah, yeah, I belong here, but then not being embraced or enveloped and not not being heard in some ways, I think, can even sometimes be more painful or hard. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the work that you've done in that space to look at like, well, what are the costs of being in a space and not being heard? And perhaps like, how does that differ from just not having access. Yeah. And this was part of my dissertation focused in on, well, how do you, so not just admiring allyship, but how do you actually think about creating an environment that fosters allyship? And so part of it comes down to recognizing that oftentimes for diverse workplaces, you need to establish a pipeline. And that can be through creating positions that are targeted for the group that you are looking to have greater representation for. And while that's where a lot of the focus comes from companies, because it's like, oh, it's a pipeline. And if we get the pipeline, then that'll be fine. But we don't always focus in on the retention piece. And you can have a pipeline, 
But if the other end of that pipe is, or the pipe is leading to something that's leaking or is in a closed system, you're not actually going to fundamentally address the problem. And so you have to think about ways that you're creating a space that's focused in fostering on retention of a diverse workforce. And so that's thinking about how are you looking at policies, formal, informal, that we have the policies on the books, what's actually being implemented, and how are we actually thinking about putting those into practice. And so really taking a critical eye and not just saying, well, this is how things have been done here, as opposed to how are we excluding people? And I work in academia, that like this is a place where people oftentimes need one or multiple degrees to work. And that's a space that is inherently exclusionary. But how can we think about rather than creating discrete criteria, flexible criteria that's designed to facilitate change and recognize that we are not necessarily in the place that we want to be as a diverse workspace, but we're thinking about addressing the policies and kind of tweaking where we can, given the constraints that every organization operates with. But recognizing that if we want to get there, it can't just be the pipeline. It also has to be what we're doing internally and how what we're doing internally creates and fosters an environment that can be either inclusive or exclusive. You know what I think is so interesting about that? Like, so the episodes, we talked a little bit about secular exclusion versus spiritual or faith-based exclusion and inclusion. And and I loved what you said about every organization, because I think that there's a way that sometimes religious organizations aren't seen as organizations. They're seen as like an extension of God or something. So it's harder yeah. sometimes, I think, to to affect change to that culture because that culture feels like it's not human made if that I don't know I'm kind of just like riffing here a little bit but I wonder if you've observed that or experienced that at all like a palpable difference in any way as a good academic I'll say that's leaving my expertise but as I was listening to the episode what I was thinking about with the religious piece was the way that and you talked about it in the episode the way that historical texts have been used for the persecution and the justification for the exclusion of multiple groups and so organizations are a reflection of norms. That's what they are at their core. And that's how we get those formal and informal policies. And so knowing that, well, that's what organizations are fundamentally taking that from the management perspective. And the norms over here are, we have a a divine text that we also use to exclude or have been used to maintain some type of power. I wouldn't necessarily be super surprised, again, fully saying the context, we've left the, we've left my expertise fundamentally. Yeah. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical, and a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. 
In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity, or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. So I wanted to get a little bit more into what you're doing professionally and personally. Do you give us a little bit more about that? So I am at Temple's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management. I am a professor and assistant professor here. I mostly teach in our our lower level classes. So I teach our kind of our foundations class for both of our majors or all three of our majors. And then on the sport and rec side, I become the not lawyer law specialist. So we do kind of managerial and interpretations of the law. What do you need to know to avoid yourself from getting sued or to have a informed conversation with legal counsel? And, you know, this has been something that I didn't necessarily see having a lot of intersection with the work that I did and have a great deal of passion for, but I've kind of found a lot of spaces where we can have conversations around not just employment practices, which is was a very clear extension of what I was doing, but with the conversations in and around how police play a role within stadium operations and stadium security, what's best practices as to how we include police and police presence within the functioning of a professional sport game, when specifically when there is some type of issue and how that creates different expectations for our different fans and the, and the acknowledgement that fans come with different experiences with police and with not. So that's a little bit of, of what I do. 
Mm -hmm. Wow. We were talking about belonging earlier and you were talking about sort of being able to be all of ourselves and then explore and bring forward different elements in different spaces. And I was just thinking like what a multifaceted and dynamic work role you have. And so how has that been to explore within an academic space, like these different facets or different areas of interest and be able to hold them simultaneously? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. I will say I think I am incredibly lucky to be here. I, you know, I think part of it's because I feel very at home here in Philly and so I think that just even feeling home enables me to be more present and to be more fully here at work and I can contrast that to my time in Minnesota where it was, you know, we made the best of a not great situation. And so I think physically being in a space in a city where I'm most comfortable having incredible colleagues who have lifted me up, have mentored me, have fostered my growth. I have one colleague, we started at the same time. She's probably 10 years advanced in her profession as I did. And I was really struggling with what it meant to be Dr. Heffernan, this like alter ego I have at work who I don't really love the power dynamic. I would prefer to be Caroline, but again, knowing that I fit out a little bit more than I fit in, I didn't want to continue to be othered and be different and potentially run into some issues knowing that I was a young, younger faculty. But she was just like, it is important that not just any queer students we have see you. It's important that our straight students see you, that our cis students see you. It's important that our female students see you. It's important that our male students see you. And you need to own it, own Dr. Heffernan until it becomes part of who you are or becomes this kind of work persona. And so I have the Dr. Heffernan work persona, which is very no nonsense. But then I also have, when I leave that, I, I have the ability to work with some of my former professors and the relationships I was able to maintain have served me, you know, and they, they knew who I was as a student, they knew what I was getting. And that allowed me to be probably a little bit more outspoken earlier in my career than I think I otherwise would have. But I also had a network of people who I trusted and who I felt like would, if, you know, my point wasn't being heard, someone else would be able to present it, you know, say we should circle back to X, Y, and Z. And I think that that has enabled me to occupy a lot of different spaces here within STHM because I have an incredible team that I'm working with and at the core, I'm an athlete, right? Everything I do is team-based. And so we all have a role. And I just finally figured out what my role is here. And I feel like I'm, I'm able to execute it to the best of my ability. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that you said everything you do is team-based. And I love also that I feel like we've sort of circled back to the allyship in your life <laughs> in some ways being then what you give to others, right? Like in moments when maybe your voice wasn't being heard, you had strong people in your corner to be able to say, let's dial it back and let's let's actually hear. And so often, I mean, there's a lot of studies out there. Maybe we can put a link to this in the show notes as well, but that show that when people are in spaces, but their voices aren't being heard, they start to silence themselves, right? And don't speak out and don't share. And then the contributions become less and people have a lot to contribute, right? Like people have a ton to contribute, especially with people whose lived experiences don't match the quote unquote, like dominant or prevalent culture, right? Like it, like those are often the best ideas, the greatest spaces of creativity and thinking outside the box because people who think outside the box 
aren't living in the box, right? Like, so they can, they can think outside of it. So, oh, I love, I love that. And, you know, so Zach and I are going to have a couple more questions for you, Caroline, for sure. But I think this is a great time to dive into some of our listener questions and comments that were sent in and emailed in. So I want to just give a shout out to Melissa Swee, who sent us an email. And actually, Melissa was interviewed in episode six of season one, but since become a listener. So like, thank you. Thank you so much, Melissa. But Melissa wrote in, uh, she writes, hi, this episode, and she was referring to the biracial episode, the first episode of season one. But she said, this episode resonates so much with my my experience of the world. I am not mixed black, but I am half Chinese, half white, and I've spent my life trying to reconcile my mixedness. I will always remember the feeling of being othered in second grade when a white teacher asked me what language I speak and what food I eat at home. This was an experience that first crystallized for me the illusion of race, that it is often defined from outside of you based on another person's perception. It is something you don't necessarily have control over. Since then, I've gone through many evolutions on my thinking about my biraciality. Now I think of it as part of my identity that imbues me with belonging and otherness. While I can float between groups in a way that is unique, I also carry the pain of struggling to feel fully claimed by any racial group. A feeling of being included, but always sort of adjacent. Maybe it is this reason that being referred to as quote unquote exotic rubs me in very much the wrong way. It feels like a passive way to tell me I don't belong, much like asking me my quote unquote ethnicity upon first meeting. I have often wondered what this urge to label people is about. Why would we not point to our sameness instead? So Melissa makes such a poignant point. And thank you so much for sharing your pain and your experiences. And I really hope listeners will go back and check out the episode that you referred to, the biracial episode. And I want to kind of like broaden the point that Melissa raised to talk about the phenomenon of othering and how exclusion relies on the overemphasis of difference. And so Caroline, can you speak a little bit to this point about sameness and difference and how these issues might apply whether to race or to other aspects of identity, such as maybe gender? Yeah, I think the concept of sameness and different, well, I guess I'll start with the concept of difference. The concept of difference, I feel like fundamentally relates to power. Right. And that's probably me and my light sociology and, and fusing my sport management stuff. But if different tends to or has historically tended to mean worse or othered and therefore sameness, therefore good. And so I think knowing that that is the paradigm with which we have operated throughout the majority of history we are now embracing difference and seeing difference as an important piece to uh, a vibrant society, but it's hard to overcome the way that we have been conditioned. Everything is kind of a natural evolution of the way that things have gone beforehand. And so I think it becomes really challenging to own your difference when, and specifically for me, I will say I only really came into owning my difference probably in my mid to late 20s. Whereas up until then, you're in high school, you're you just want to belong, right? All you've ever wanted to do is belong, you wanted to fit into some group, because it's easier, honestly, most times to fit in than it is to fit out. So I think that it's a little bit of 
the way that we naturally evolve as, as individuals and we eventually become to be our own independent entities where uniqueness is valued. But for so long as an individual, we wanted to fit in. And then recognizing the way that difference has been used as a, as a tool for othering and a tool for the maintenance of power. And I don't think we always think about those things as being inherently linked because it's the societal and the individual, but there is obviously this kind of dynamic relationship between the two, even though we don't always recognize it. And there are so many instances where I was able, like a very silly example of this. And, you know, my, both of my sisters have red hair and they both have long flowy red hair. And as a kid, I would be in the grocery store with my mom who I look exactly alike. And they would be like, well, is he adopted because I was, I had like short hair as a little kid. And so I looked like a little boy and she would be like, no, she's mine too. And all I wanted to do was just be like, I wanted people to know that like that I was part of the family too. And it's just like these simple comments that people think it's, oh, you know, they have such pretty red hair. Is this one adopted? It's like, where do you get off? And so most people don't recognize some of the harm that they're perpetuating or the norms that they're perpetuating in these comments that they're making because they're not necessarily recognizing the trauma that is being brought to that moment. Why do you have to make a comment about my particular family? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for that. And Mm -hmm. thank you too to Melissa. And I really appreciate, Caroline, that in your answer, you spoke both about um, like a visual element, right? That people point to. And then also just this recognition that sometimes the othering can happen based on like, as in your example and in Melissa's example, like other people perceive something and point to it versus this othering that happens because the person recognizes that like, hey, there is something about me that doesn't quite quote unquote fit. Right. And I think there's like, when we talk about visible and invisible identity markers or differences, like all of it matters. And it's really important to feel a sense of belonging. And there is the phenomenon of like passing versus not passing and whether or not, and all of it gets so messy and so sticky. And I think to the larger point, like it's nobody's business, like just like, can't we kind of create a society where people can be who they are and difference can be something that is part of a vibrant and beautiful and uplifting society. And I certainly don't know how to do that. And at the same time, I think it's really helpful to point to the fact that people shouldn't be othering people regardless for any reason. Yeah. And I often think that the comments that are made are usually towards something that we're already aware of, right? Like I'm already aware that I look nothing like my sisters and the comment coming from someone who I don't know who who I will never interact with again in the rest of my life. But the fact that it was like so many trips to the grocery store, it's not just that one interaction, but it's oftentimes the ways that they compound each other and create this, well, is there something wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Or why can't I just be blank? Why can't I just be normal? Why can't I just be whatever the situation? Because all you want to do is fit in, belong to, I think, Zach's original question. All you want to do is belong to whatever group. And sometimes we belong by fitting out. 
and particularly when you were younger, we just want to fit in. Mm, yeah. Oh God. Thank you so much for that. And thank you again, Melissa. Zach, if you'd play, we have a call-in question from a listener named Trish who called in with a uh, with a question that we'd love your perspective on, Caroline. Hi, I'm Trish from Ohio, and it was eye-opening hearing about the speaker's experience in identifying more than one marginalized group and how they face discrimination in the spaces that were meant to be safe. So what does inclusivity and equity training look like when it's being presented within groups that are themselves marginalized. Thank you so much. And I hope to hear the answer soon. Yeah, so I'm not necessarily an expert in, in the trainings and the creation of trainings. So I, you get good academic trying always recognize our expertises. But I think even within, when we're thinking about creating trainings and recognizing that trainings are often standardized for whatever particular problem that they're problem that they are trying to address. And I think it becomes the responsibility of the moderator and you can have incredibly skilled moderators or the person delivering the training as to how they go about creating an environment that not only just achieves the the outcomes, but fosters a space where you can have a critical conversation but and a critical doesn't necessarily have to mean attacking, but a, a conversation where we are challenging the norms and challenging the way that we go about thinking things, but also lead to tangible outcome. I think from some of my own frustrations with with trainings and even just having read enough about the way that organizations are run, which oftentimes trainings are, are meant for organizations, is will oftentimes just uh, admire a problem. It's like, oh, this is the problem. And these are some pieces that are contributing to it. But we're not actually ever thinking about how to solve the problem. And the goal of training is to move past the problem and move towards solving or or working towards that issue. And, And with a lot of these issues, right, it might not ever be solved, but the goal is progress. The goal is work. And I think it's how do you, within a short period of time, provide enough contextual factors so that we understand some of the pieces that contribute to the problem. We don't just admire it, but we then think about, well, what are we going to do to move towards addressing the problem? And I think where a lot of trainings fail is that we don't actually have some type of post-mortem. It's six months out. What have we done? Right? We did this training six months ago and now we're back or nothing's changed or now we're training about something different. Because a training is, is it's often treated as a checkbox and it's not actually thought of as something that we're building capacity and we're building capacity to change rather than you attended this, we can check this off and we can make sure that, hey, you now know to not sexually harass someone. Cool. But you don't actually know that the jokes that you're making are still inappropriate, right? Because you still don't fundamentally understand how these contributing pieces are continuing to create a problem because you aren't fundamentally engaged in the conversation because you might not know the contributing pieces. Yeah. Oh, I love that you spoke about that. I will say, you know, and thank you, Trish, for the call-in question. So we conduct some trainings with the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And one of the things that I have found incredibly useful is exactly what you're talking about, Caroline, to have not just like a one-off 
situation, but to have a series of three trainings or six or a year follow-up or something like, you know, where we're implementing, we're giving people tools and then giving them the ability to practice. And one thing that Zach and I try to make part of every single training, if they'll allow us, is the application piece, you know, and I love that in the listener question, it was about, you know, well, what do you do when people who are perhaps being marginalized, like how do you effectively tailor trainings to those people? And one of the things I found incredibly helpful for everybody across the board is that application piece. Like, okay, how can we practice racial literacy by perhaps going into a moment that was a point of pain and reimagining that or feeling that or, you know, healing from that trauma in some way or, or confronting it in some way? Because to your earlier point, a lot of times these situations are repetitive. The person is subject to the same thing in a different context, but like again and again and again. And so it's to find like, is there an opportunity for agency? Is there an opportunity for allyship? How do we practice cultural competency? How do we change the nature of an organization while also giving the people who are in it, who are being marginalized, some level of resilience or agency within that conversation? So I think it's like a very complicated question, but I really appreciate the points that you made. And yeah, and I personally, I appreciate anyone who's willing to invest in the work in a real way and to continue to fall forward as opposed to just checking the box. Always. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So, connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. So we have a question from Jenna in Ohio. Hi, I'm Jenna from Athens, Ohio. And I was wondering, knowing that LGBTQ plus identifying folks are part of a nearly every community and that protections lack in many areas of our country, how can support resources for the LGBTQ plus youth be organized and distributed? distributed in towns, counties, states, etc., when they aren't already readily available. Thanks. This to me seems like an infrastructure problem and in, in that we if we can't necessarily rely on the government to to Jenna's point and that the reason it is lacking sometimes is because that there might be a, a lack of willingness to engage in this space. And so this is kind of the infrastructure of allyship and how willing is an individual to take their self-awareness to recognize, hey, there isn't anything within my community that's going to support LGBT youth. And knowing that LGBT youth have the highest rates of homelessness and high rates of suicide attempts, 
How can we think about supporting our youth to prevent those types of problems? And so I think it comes down to to have someone to be willing to start the initiative, to take ownership of it, but then also how are they going to think about recruiting other people to be involved, right? Because the power of allyship is the power of numbers. That's effectively what it is. And it's demonstrating that it's not just the affected, but it's the concerned people who want to see change. And so there has to be a person to get the ball rolling, but hopefully and eventually that there is momentum. And so it might not be that you're able to cover your entire state, a state particularly as large as Ohio, but maybe you can think about focusing in on your particular region and how can you think about creating something that is manageable, right? Because so much of social justice work requires you to put yourself out there, but to not make sure that you're not or to make sure that you are not exhausting yourself for the cause, because the cause will then ultimately not be able to benefit from that exhaustion. So you have to do, practice a little bit of self-care, but how can you make sure that you're creating some type of infrastructure so that you can amplify your impact through the impact of others? Thank you so much for that. I feel like that is going to be like a huge thinking point for us. I know Zach and I are going to talk about that behind the scenes. Like, how can you amplify your impact? What what exactly did you say, Caroline? Because I'm like, I'm, I want to, I want to like frame that and like make it a bumper, like, I don't know, put it on my mirror or something. So I can, that like last little bit that you said, it was beautiful. Yeah. I think it's just like, how can you think about what your impact is and how can you amplify it? Right. Yeah. Like there are so many spaces that I'm in that I'm like, I can't be everywhere. There are many, I, I, I just can't, but I know that I can impact the way that my colleagues act in and around one particular area. And therefore it amplifies my impact so much so that they're now thinking about how they're going to address an LGBT situation at their local CYO. Those are things that I'm like that I'm not doing that work, but that the change in that work has a dotted line to me. And so it's recognizing that, we're not just working on ourselves, but we're working with and through other people. And so that to me is what amplifying your impact is, right? Not just by yourself. None of this work is done by ourselves, but we're working with and through to extend our impact. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. We have another question from an anonymous listener about LGBTQ protections. Hi. So learning that only 21 states have comprehensive express protections for LGBTQ plus identifying individuals is shocking. So what does the roadmap look like to get these protections in the remaining 29 states? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess I'll put on my non-lawyer hat, but the person who teaches a fair amount of law I am particularly hopeful that the change that came from the Title VII ruling that included gender identity and sexual orientation in Bostock in 2020, that that interpretation of sex could be extended across other federal laws. I think that that would be incredible. I don't necessarily think that that is happening to this point. So federally, that might be the best and quickest, again, in quotes, option, because states move at very slow, slow rates. And I know the current administration is advancing a act that, is it the Equality Act? The name is escaping me. Yeah, the Equality Act. Yep. The Equality Act. And so that act, calling your senators, calling your representatives, doing those types of things to try and get that federal protection 
is going to be probably the, the way that you get to those 29 states the fastest, because there are some states who wait a while to ratify amendments that should have been ratified. You know, state, we have a history of not necessarily getting on board. So I think that the, the quickest and best way would be to advance for federal protections. Yeah. And we will put a link to uh, Casey Suffredini was interviewed in a couple of those episodes uh, from Freedom for All Americans. And we'll put a link to that because I think they have a thing that you can shortcut and download, right? So there's like letters to your senators and lists of people that you can get in contact with. But thank you so much for that anonymous question. And Caroline, thanks for the answer. There's another email question, actually our last listener question for this Q&A episode, but it's from Val. So Val writes, Dear Dara, Lisa, and Zach, thank you for the podcast. You're welcome, Val. Thank you. I came out as queer and non-binary a few years ago in college and have felt included and welcome in the LGBTQ community. Well, mostly. I grew up in an ultra-religious environment, and anytime I speak about that to my friends, they have really negative things to say about religion. Like they want me to hate the faith I grew up with. And while I'm not currently practicing, I loved my experiences growing up and going to church and always felt at home there. It might have been different if I'd known my gender identity or sexual orientation then, but I never had anyone at church be unaccepting to me as so many of my friends have been towards my former church. How can I validate their experiences while not keeping silent about my own? And then Val adds, I love how Angel pointed out in her interview that not everyone has had the same experiences with faith. And I'd love some tips on how I can be true to myself and have room in my life for my friends and a faith that I might not be practicing, but which will always be part of me. So thank you so much, Val, for that beautiful email and question. And Caroline, I'll turn it over to you if you have any thoughts or reflections. I think for me, the best piece of advice would be to maybe have individual conversations with those friends and say, you know, well, what was your faith experience? And then create the opportunity for you to share yours and to demonstrate not just to them that we tend to conflate our experiences with what the broad experience is and to recognize that for those people, oh, I actually did have, you know, you were raised in a, in a faith tradition that didn't create trauma, but part of that barrier might be that they are shunning it because it shut them. And so I think engaging in conversations in those particular ways is an important thing. But I also think that for me, one of the things that I've done, even though as someone who's not actively practicing, I have kind of tried on different religious styles, sex, trying to figure out, well, is this, is this something I want to bring back into my life as someone who's spent a lot of time with a lot of people who have passed on in church. And for me, church is kind of the space to connect with those people who have passed on. And while I was in Minneapolis, I was reading Gloria Steinem's memoir that had come out and she talked about there was a church in Minneapolis that was Catholic and she was prepared to give the homily. And then from the Vatican, right, like came down on high and they got, there was something that was issued that says only people of the of faith can say the homily. And so now that church provides the priest give the homily. And then there's usually someone from a social justice cause or from science who is there to educate the, the church during that session of mass around that. And so for me, I was like, oh, this doesn't have to be right. Church doesn't have to be what I grew up with it being. And so there are times that I have a friend who was also raised Catholic and we're kind of towing the line as to whether or not we want to go back into faith. Or if we want to just join Unitarian, become Unitarians, because 
it's more aligns with our politics. And so recognizing that there, are, I think in the, in the episode, it said, there's not just Christianity, there's Christianities. Mm. And we tend, and I'm guilty of this as well, is painting Christianity as this monolith, whereas recognizing that where you are both mentally and physically, that could mean a different thing. Uh, you know, a Catholic church in Philadelphia is much more likely to be welcoming to me, Caroline Heffernan, as I am physically than a church two hours west of here. Mm-hmm where you are physically might open you up to those spaces and you might be able to invite those friends of yours into that space to demonstrate, Hey, this isn't something, but also recognizing that there may be some trauma that you don't quite know about that is informing that response. And the only way you might be able to get that is by having that conversation. Thank you so much. Hi listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you're listening to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. We want to answer your questions about topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this season, during each of our question and answer episodes, we'll be joined by a special guest expert who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. So call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message with your question or drop us a note through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question might make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Caroline, what were your major takeaways from the two episodes, LGBTQ exclusion and LGBTQ inclusion? I think from the exclusion episode, what I spent a lot of time noodling about after it was just thinking about the way that And in it, they talked about how, and I said before, religious texts have been used to justify excluding other groups and how some of the people who were interviewed, they were talking about, well, that's, you know, that's not all Christian, that's all Christians, right? But as someone who is not just a, someone who thinks about, who knows the past, but also is very aware of the present, I recognize how religious groups are advancing causes that are trying to repeal Roe and how just because I have rights to marry in 2021, those rights are now just old enough to be vaccinated, right? Like they're, they're six years old at this point. And so I hear the point of not all Christians and not all religions and not all sex. And I had, I just said that, but I also know enough and I am skeptical enough that I don't know that I trust that there won't be a change because we're seeing this change happening on rights that were pretty set in stone as of a few years ago. So for me, the exclusion piece and the part that I couldn't quite come to terms with as someone who was formerly religious was, yes, not all sex, but there's a really long, long long history of using these texts to exclude. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that history is dead yet. Yeah. So that was my major takeaway from exclusion. And my take from inclusion is really just, you know, I mentioned before, like for me, team is everything. And I think that was the thing that I remembered was the more likelihood that you feel included or that you have a space of belonging 
the belonging piece, I think, is so incredibly crucial and the inclusive nature, the part about inclusion drives the ability for people to be present and engaged and not necessarily mean that that is going to be everything is going to be honky dory, but it's going to allow for conversations that go past the surface, right? Like you had mentioned the person who, while they were very, you know, they loved their job, they felt comfortable enough and capable enough because they had been so invested that they could open themselves up and they ultimately did get fired, right? So that inclusion, right? The fact that they felt safe allowed them to be vulnerable. And so I think that the vulnerability that comes from being inclusion creates spaces that have the potential for incredible growth. And so much of what this space diversity and inclusion work is about is trying to get to the opportunity for growth. And the only way that we do that really is through vulnerability and the willingness for people to show up and put themselves on the line in a way that they feel comfortable with. Thank you so much. And I, I also really, really appreciated Like, I think sometimes in a podcast format, we can want to like tie things up with a pretty bow and like make it digestible for people and really recognizing the severity of trauma that has been and continues to be inflicted by what I believe to be the misuse of biblical texts. I don't think I talked about this on the podcast at all, but one of my majors in college was religious studies because I really wanted to know, like I really wanted to understand more about faith and just the way that faith has been used in some ways as a battering ram and a way of really just harming people. And then I think even in the acknowledgement that like, well, in some communities, it's not that way anymore. Like, even if that's true, it doesn't mean that the trauma isn't still there and that the wounds aren't still fresh and that there's not that fear of, well, what if it happens again? And am I really safe here when I know that three years ago, I wouldn't have been permitted to walk through those doors. And as you pointed out, Caroline, the safety that seemed to be guaranteed is no longer guaranteed. And so I think that is highly problematic. And we're seeing that in secular and religious spaces. So I really appreciate you bringing that to the forefront. And I hope that people will be prompted to think critically about like, well, yeah, how do I reconcile? I think Reverend Naomi Washington spoke about this, that sometimes religion can be a way of appeasing some of the trauma that people experience. And sometimes it can be a way of perpetrating the trauma. And I think that's because it's wielded by people, right? And people are inherently messy and complicated and we do horrible things to each other, sometimes in the name of saving one another, you know, like, but I really appreciate you bringing that up. And Caroline, how can people support the work that you're doing personally and professionally? How can our listeners support you and and what you're up to? Well, I would say most importantly, call your senators, call your state reps. I have actually taken the step of I have them as contacts in my phone. So I have like Senator Toomey's office and I strive to be like my mother where they're like, ah, yes, um, we know who you are. We know you're calling so much so that it, it just reduces the barrier. Like when I think about it, it's like, oh, I'm going to call the office and say, and not just call to me because I disagree with most of the things that he's doing, but also calling Senator Casey's office and being as engaged as you can be. And, you know, specifically to, you know, the work I'm doing here at STHM, I'm mostly very student facing. So in that way, not necessarily, you know, you can always donate to scholarships and those types of things. But 
I would say the work that I'm doing is no different than the work that you, Darylise and Zach are doing. It's just, we're doing it in different spaces. And so whatever space you're occupying, try and think about how can you ask critical questions, double down and amplify the voices around you, but then also figure out how can you work with and through others to make sure that you are Again, amplifying your impact. How can you make sure that it's not just you who's working on something, but you are working on a cause that you care about and you're enlisting a team of people that you trust, that you ride or die people, that you want to make sure that you're working on this thing collectively because allyship at its core is teamwork. And, you know, I wanted to title my dissertation, Teamwork Makes the Dream Work, and my advisor wouldn't let me. (laughs) (laughs) But... That's all it is. And it's probably a simple, simple jock thing to say that all allyship is teamwork, but it's, it's teamwork around a social justice cause. And if you're passionate about this work, we occupy a lot of different spaces and it's showing up and having the willingness to start putting yourself out there and asking the critical questions because that's the only way that things change. Mm, I love that. So Darylise, we have one last question for Caroline, but before we get to that, let's take a minute to do our book giveaway for this episode. Yeah, absolutely. So we drew a name at random before starting recording this Q&A. And this episode, the winner is... Clara Martis. Woohoo! Congratulations. Congratulations, Clara. You've won a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and its accompanying workbook. Yay. Awesome, Clara. So we'll send you an email to get your information and mail you signed copies of the book and workbook. Thank you so much for being a subscriber. So Caroline, last question as promised. Why do you do what you do? Why is this important to you personally? And why should it matter to others? I think it comes down to, like I mentioned, Bernard taught me to engage with the world around things I care about through the vehicle I know best. I know sport the best. It's, again, the basis for all of my awful wordplay, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. It's just the foundation for which my brain and my life has organized around and has afforded me incredible opportunities because of it. And so I think the reason that I do the work that I do is because I recognize that the only way that we win and winning is subjective in this space is when everyone is able to execute their role. And in the event that we have someone who in their position is not able to fully do what they're capable of because of some type of structural constraint, that for me is a problem. And that is a reason that I get up and come to teach my students every day. It's to just so that they have someone who looks a little bit different in front of them. And so that they know that you can occupy whatever space you want to occupy. You just have to be passionate and you have to be good at what you do. And you can do those things and be good at your job and also advocate around diversity, equity, inclusion. Awesome. Awesome.
Thank you so much, Caroline, for joining us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Indeed. And thank you all for listening wherever you are. Uh, if you're listening to this and you want to get in touch with Caroline, please contact her at, uh, tell us, Caroline, what's the best way for folks to, to reach out to you? Probably my email, Heffernan at Temple. I also have a, an Instagram account that's Dr. Heffernan, H-E-F-F-E-R-N-A-N. But that's mostly for my students. You're, you're welcome to follow me. I post a lot of things about sport and law and silly things that are happening here at STHM. But that's a good way to follow me as well. Awesome. Thanks. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Great, great. And if you haven't already, listeners, please like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And if you'd like to ask us questions or have a comment, please call our number at 844-888-8148, and we'll try to answer or respond in an upcoming Q&A episode. Also visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other diversity, equity, and inclusion services. And as always, every episode of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast is written reported and produced by Darylise Lyons. Yep, with the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, assistant producer and editor, Paul Kondo, production and development assistant, Stuart Cranes, and content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. The music you heard today is Better by Brittany Monet. Thank you again to Caroline so much and to you, the listener. Please join us next week as we dive into Black history. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world. <laughs>